0: Hello, and welcome to Red Flag Radio. We are recording this um, podcast on Indigenous land land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. My name is Ros Ward and I'm the host of Red Flag Radio, which is a revolutionary socialist podcast. Welcome if you are a first-time listener to the podcast and welcome back to all our um, ongoing listeners and thanks especially to our um, financial supporters on Patreon. We realize it's been uh, a little bit longer between episodes this time around and we've been – deep in the midst of an election campaign, which we're going to be talking about today uh, with the Victorian socialists that me and Liam Ward. Hi, Liam. Hi, Ros. Uh, we're both also candidates uh, for in the Darabin Council area here in Melbourne. Um, and we're going to be yeah going into some detail with that. Uh, because today, and we're recording the show on Sunday, the 8th of November, that there's been some Big news overnight, and um, it's a very important election result. And no, it's not Joe <laughs> Biden. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jorge Chacera, who was confirmed just yesterday afternoon as having won the first ever seat on council for the Victorian Socialists for Maribyrn on council, which is in the west um, of Melbourne here, after two recounts. Like, this is serious business. I don't know how many lawyers we had in the room. Um and only by two votes. And so we're very excited and pleased to welcome back Jorge, who was on a previous episode of um, Red Flag Radio talking about the protests in Chile and um, listen back to that episode. It's a really good one. And actually um, Jorge talks about some of his experiences growing up in Chile and that, um, which we don't have time to go into today, but I think it's a really great episode. So, Congratulations, uh, councillor. how How are you feeling this morning? Is it sinking in? Uh, thanks very
1: much for having me on, um, Ros and Liam. Uh, yeah, look, it's barely uh, barely sunk in. Um, difficult for it to sink in because you sort of immediately the number of stuff and and people making contact and things that you know you sort of have to take on board or think about. Uh, already had numerous sort of messages and calls from all sorts of people mostly positive also some on the uh, more I suppose hilarious side uh, you know MPs uh, people from even from other yeah you know, other countries or just some interesting and, and sometimes funny stuff but um yeah barely sort of had the opportunity for it to sink in in terms of the, what's important for us you know as Victorian socialists which you know is uh, to pursue the policies we campaigned on you know the vision that we campaigned on. That's the stuff that's going to be the hard work, but also I think not, not only hard and challenging, but really exciting for Victorian socialists. Yeah. What's the funniest person who's called you? Who What MPs have called you? <laughs> okay. Well, just this morning, I got a message from uh, the in, uh, environmental minister in Venezuela, who I know. Oh, there USAC. you go. <laughs> so that, was yep. a bit funny. Uh, that was pretty funny. Um, but also, as you can imagine, Labor people, Green people, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, wrangling, I suppose, that's going to go on, that always goes on in these sort of institutions, you know, in the, um, whether it's council politics, state, you know, or federal politics. Um, so there's the inevitable sort of um, calls from, um, well, I've actually got a couple sort of congratulations calls from uh, Labor people and also mm-hmm. other MP, uh, another MP in the upper house but also calls about, you know, the the business of council, you know, because we've got uh, a couple of the first meetings of council coming up this week and one of them, of course, includes the election of the mayor. So you can imagine the sort of uh, shenanigans. Mm.
0: Maneuvers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Um, And have you had calls about dog poo bins, parking so far? or Is that all yet to come? (laughs) That's yet to come.
1: Actually, you know, it's interesting. In terms of the local issues, uh, I had my first experience of that yesterday. I think I posted this on a Facebook post, and it was a really beautiful experience, actually, because it was just after we found out um, about um, having been um, elected, and uh, I went. I'd actually I've just gone down to the sort of ceremony, um, which I. You know, I barely knew about in time, so I got there late. It was a bit of a typical Latin American time thing, but anyway, had a bit of a laugh down there with the electoral workers, etc. And straight after that, I went to pick up a, a bike at one of the local bike repair sort of workshops here in Footscray. The guy there um, recognised me in the, in the campaign and uh, introduced himself as an Anarcho-communist in the West, hmm. uh, and we had a fantastic chat about how he and other cyclists want to organise an action. Um, for bike safety in one of the roads here, that's where there's been a lot of accidents. It runs right through the middle. Of Barclay Street runs right through the middle of Footscray, and I myself cycle on it every day, but I'm pre-COVID anyway, when I'm going to work. And it is it's a dangerous trip. And his idea was to organise a critical mass-style um, rally with bicycles. So you know those sort of you know that sort of stuff happening locally, being organised, those sort of points of initiative is fantastic. So you know at the local level in terms of local politics, you can see also the potential for some really fantastic sort of actions that, you know, mobilise people, organise
0: people. Yeah. Mm. Um, so let's just take a step back. People might not be familiar um, with the Victorian Socialists. Um, it's not a socialist group from um, a century or and a half ago. It's a socialist group organised around the state of Victoria here in Australia. Um, can you give a bit of background about the Victorian Socialists? I mean, me, Liam, and you are all... Found founder members um, of the group. So what was the party kind of set up to do and, and how was it set up?
1: Well, it's it's a pretty new organisation. In that sense, I reckon we've had an incredible amount of success given we've only been around since, what, I think February, February 2018, I think, was yep. the founding month. Um, and uh, I suppose in essence it's an organisation that came together to try to bring together um, a range of sort of socialist organisations existing and um, and individual socialists, trade unionists, people who could see um, elections as one vehicle at least for, you know, putting a united socialist voice on, you know, key issues of the day. Um, And, of course, elections do that. You know, they give you a platform to voice issues, to campaign around issues. And, you know, already in those two years, I think we've had pretty incredible success. I mean, especially these council elections. I was amazed hearing the results that we got across, you know, all the... Uh, wards and and councils we stood in, like, you know, percentage points, five, eight, ten percentage points all around the place, really high numerical uh, votes, you know, which is self-important in terms of, you know, building up a a base of support uh, and comparatively really high votes, you know, compared to Greens candidates in certain places, to Labor candidates and to all sorts of other independents, including, you know, more right-wing conservative ones.
0: Mm. And so going into the council elections then, I mean, it's been a very unusual election campaign period being in the middle of, in Melbourne we've had um, one of the longest and most uh, rigorous lockdowns anywhere in the world, I think, um, and the council elections took place in the in the midst of that period. I mean, how did that affect things? And sort of when we decided where we were running, actually um, – how how easy was it to convince you to be a candidate in your local area? Because you live where you um, are now the councillor. Was it hard to convince you? Were you up for it? Did you, did you think you would have a chance of winning at that point?
1: Uh, no, I just thought, you know, when someone asked me, I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, <laughs> you know, if it can be useful, um, you know, for sure. Um, yeah, look, um, I suppose... Well, first thing, on, on, you know, just how difficult it was with COVID, I think it may seem um, a little bit, I don't know, rich or whatever to say this, but I genuinely think that in with no COVID restrictions, say, so you know, pre-COVID period, um, at least here in Maribyrnong, because I, I saw what we did here up front and what we could do, I, and I think probably throughout we could have won not one councillor, but three, four, five, who knows, to be honest, yeah, because... Great. We were the most disadvantaged by this because on the ground, we would have been able to door knock, talk to people in a way that no, literally no other campaign uh, would have been either interested in or capable of. Um, you know, most of the campaigns in council elections, certainly by independents, but even by Greens and Labour and Liberal forces, are usually pretty much done through big spending, you know, ads, sometimes even billboards, and of course the letterboxing. but. Usually, the parties, in particular the Labour Party, who would door knock, say, for state elections, not likely to in many of the council elections. And I think we would have had a massive advantage, you know, uh, in a non COVID times. And I don't doubt we would have got a lot more councillors. I mean, even here out west in other wards, um, one of our other candidates, Liz Walsh, uh, came second and could well have got, if preferences had fallen her way, would have got, uh, was very close to getting um the other uh, another council position here in Mer- Mer- and there's other examples of that so that's one thing definitely COVID made it harder for us much much harder given you know what we're really great at which is you know the campaigning on the street um yes yeah, to um me running yeah um yeah I mean I've lived out here for a long time probably god I don't know it goes back to the first time I lived in Yarraville well, at least was probably in the early 90s and then In and out for a while, but then the last twenty odd years, apart from when we've lived, our family and I've lived overseas, we've been in the west of Melbourne, really. Um, So, and we've lived in in every ward. I think I worked out yesterday because because we rent, we're renters. Um, You know, we are usually moving house, looking for cheaper prices, rental prices. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we've been here for a long time. Um, So that was an advantage, I suppose. You know, knowing a lot of people, having worked with a lot of people in different around different local issues. Um, having run here quite a few times, I can't really remember how many times, but I'm pretty sure I've run quite a few times out west in state, federal, and even local elections. I can't pin that ladder down, but you know, that sort of helped in terms of having a bit of a profile.
0: And your soccer team?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> started, actually, some of the, the, it's been great actually, the number of people, because I've coached in three different um, clubs here out west, one out of so that's further west, but the other two are in. Maribyrnong, um, currently coaching at Maidstone United, but I've also coached at Yarrow, which is probably the biggest club in the area. Um, and, yeah, it was so much support. I'm still getting messages from players, families, because I've coached a lot of junior teams. I've got some fantastic sort of messages from people there, including, you know, messages from people that uh, it's great when you meet people, you know, who just um, want to be part of something like this. You know, um, uh, someone, a parent of one of my players, messaged me yesterday saying, look, I've worked a lot, In uh, town planning for state and local council elections, if you need expertise around town planning, you know, put me down in your contact list. You know, which I did Mm. straight away. Um, You know, that sort of stuff is just fantastic.
0: Yeah, amazing. And you're going to have to declare um, an interest if there's uh, funding going for, you know, soccer pitch improvements, changing rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: that could be one of our uh, other uh, initial early campaigns because. As you probably know, one of the big issues out here um, last year especially, and it's a constant issue, is around public space, but in particular around Footscray Park. Yeah. Um, and um, that, that that involved a lot of sort of soccer issues because obviously it was about privatising it and handing it over to um, Melbourne Victory, a you know, corporate you know soccer entity. Um, and it's an ongoing issues because even though the campaign won on the issue of Footscray Park itself, um, the sort of dodgy stuff that councils do is incredible at this level. So, for example, I've already been contacted by some clubs about this. So there's a, another spa, a bit of space out here which was initially promised by the council to be uh, used collectively by other clubs, soccer clubs in particular, and a certain n- number of hours given to Melbourne Victory. Instead, what we hear now is Melbourne Victory's got a 25-year lease on that with exclusive use. Mm. Um so this sort of stuff happens all the time. So, yeah, there'll be a lot of, you know, basis for
0: campaigning on that sort of front. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, my experience in Darabin um, looking at the sort of things that councils get up to and the deals that happen and the small print-on agreements, yeah, it's just an amazing. I mean, everything that people um, have as a kind of stereotype of local councils is pretty much true, you know, like, the role of developers, um, the deals that get done, the kind of cowboy operations of people who ostensibly belong to the major parties but seem to do whatever they want, Um, the local business owners' influence, all of these kind of things are, yeah, pretty amazing. The way that contracts go get given out um, to certain companies, yeah. Um, I think with having you in council Hey, it's gonna we're gonna figure out even more, or they're gonna hide things. Have to hide things a lot deeper. Mm. Yeah. So, I guess p- for the politics of the whole thing, like, what were the big issues you think that resonated with the electorate in the West? But just generally, you know, the Victorian socialists. I mean, we're not like the other. Main parties and we're not we're not trying to be. So in this election, let's talk about some of the the kind of big ticket things, and then also some of the local issues.
1: Well, I think a lot of the issues, and not just here, as you mentioned, Ross, but um, in our whole campaign across uh, all the councils and wards, uh, a lot of the issues were the, the let's call them global issues. You know, the big issues, really, because you know whether it's um, job seeker. All the stuff we talked about around housing, you know, they're not issues that are exclusively or in many cases not even the domain of councils. And, and often you get this retort, well, you know, council can't decide on that, and, and that's a common retort you get mm. from other other campaigners, you know, on, in, on the right of politics, Labor campaigners, even the Greens and so forth, which, of course, in a way, I mean, to be honest, I mean, that, that's a retort you get even if you run in, in um, federal parliament or for federal parliamentary elections because the reality is that it's true that no no institution no state institution capitalist state institution really decides much i mean they decide certain things but the reality is that the real decisions are made in, in corporate boardrooms so in a sense it's true it's true that not n- not neither councils state governments or federal councils uh truly decide you know um that the big big decisions even if they obviously have more or less impact on them. Um, it, but that really speaks to our truth and what we, we talked about throughout the election campaign, which is that from our point of view, if you're going to win anything, it's not about what gets voted up or down in a council um, chamber or even in a federal parliament, but about the sort of campaigns you build on the street and the pressure you put on. We were lucky too, you know, I think in Melbourne on that people had In fresh in their minds, a very, very clear example of that at the council level because the Footscray Save Footscray Park campaign saved the park totally based on action, including mass action, you know, Mm. occupying the council chambers, etc. You know, so there was a really fresh example, which I think was great in terms of the momentum for
0: our campaign in particular here in Maribyrnong. And if we compare some of that to what the other candidates ran on, I mean. The big thing that was um, extremely noticeable if you were paying any attention in Darabin was that the Victorian socialist material um, here just didn't talk about the interests of business, small Mm. business, medium-sized business, big business, any of that kind of stuff, whereas basically every other party and independent candidate's material has that as one of the top two bullet points that they put on their leaflets. Was that the same in your area?
1: Oh, totally, totally. Um, And I think what we found from our side in responding to thats that um, or dealing with that is that um, you can all, even the smallest local issue can be linked to the global problems and questions, you know. And um, one thing that, um, well, example of that that struck me is one day I was um, driving home, I just picked up my son who works at, um, one of my sons who works at Hungry Jacks and, you know, he was going on about how, um, their managers were gloating uh, about how high profits were um, during COVID, you know, at Hungry Jacks. And I started to do some research and, and look at how, you know, it's amazing how there, that issue, and we, we put out some memes and stuff here um, as part of our campaign around this, how in that particular case, for example, Hungry Jacks, on the one hand, you've got all these uh, underpaid young workers and often at risk, you know, during the period of COVID health risk, while, you know, these billionaire, the billionaire owner of Hungry Jacks was not only raking in higher profits than they had in the previous six months to COVID, but also, you know, refusing to pay rent on uh, their leases, you know, because of, you know, the, you know, the problems around, so-called problems for them around caused by COVID. So, you know, there was always ways like that of, you know, bringing some very local issues in this case, you know, about, say, casual wages of young people. Um, in those precar- in those sort of industries, uh, bring them to bear in council election and I think we'll be able to do that, you know, as councillors, you know, we'll be able to also raise the exact same sort of issues with that sort of emphasis.
0: And then you get the Liberal Government Job Maker Scheme basically then giving Hungry Jack's, mo- like, government money to subsidise the low wages of people like your son um, on top of all of that. So basically they can pay him $5 an hour and the government will pay the rest um, and they can keep him on a completely casual, um, insecure contract and so on. So, yeah, all I agree all of those things are absolutely linked together and worth talking about and it was one of the um, campaign points around um, tackling wage theft was a big issue in a bunch of different of our different Victorian socialist campaigns and the fact that all these small businesses basically – Um, think that they can get away with um, yeah just ripping off workers all of the time and so even at a local council level the idea that you could run some kind of local audit of all of the small businesses hospitality venues just to find out what's going on because nobody is doing that you know Mm.
1: exactly exactly and i mean it's made worse by the fact that uh, obviously over the last couple of decades in particular maybe the last decade especially so much of that labor is barely documented because it's often or has been often overseas students for example or people on on precarious visas and so forth you know for which you know there's been less sort of public interest you know to defend their rights
2: Mm. Mm. i think the um like one of the ways that this stuff around uh, councils looking up looking after business, but also as you say, some of these big issues of the day, you know, kind of global issues, the way these two things played out in Darabin. Uh, one of the kind of little scandals that emerged uh, during the campaign here was that the Greens-dominated council uh, had previously voted down a motion from a left-wing independent uh, to stop any further privatisation of aged care, and this was. In in a situation where you know the the aged care centres were ground zero of the pandemic in Melbourne, you know all of our elderly loved ones were were dying in their hundreds because of this scandal of privatised aged care, uh, and that the Greens had they committed themselves to to not stopping any further uh, privatisation of aged care in Darabin. Mm. Um, You know and that that was yeah you know, yeah one of these big issues across the kind of national political spectrum and you know through the across the globe probably really because about privatisation and whatnot. Uh, that all of that was playing out in this local area as well and that actually the council does and should have something to say about that.
0: Oh, exactly, Liam, Yep. Yeah. And there's nothing, I mean, yeah, there's nothing different about the neoliberalism of local council politics to the neoliberalism of global politics as well. You know, all those things are tied together, privatisation, outsourcing, precarious employment and all of that, and it's just something that the other campaigns do not talk about at all. Um, and i wanted to ask you Jorge about whether there were elements of the other um campaigners or the party platforms that surprised you i mean for me it is just such a right-wing terrain and so i think we do stand out in that um, sense but were people talking about that with you or you know were there examples of that that you came across that particularly surprised or shocked you yeah it's sort of
1: interesting you, you mentioned that Because, I mean, at one level, I think sometimes with council elections, including this time, on this occasion, you get this impression that a lot of candidates um, more than anything want to hide their political views, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and only maybe say things where they think they've got a strong suit uh, electorally, you know, in terms of potential support. And, of course, a big thing is, you know, some of these business independents, and for them it's all about you know, um, especially with COVID, this, COVID exaggerated this, you know, the importance of small business for the community, that sort of stuff is a big sort of narrative that affects local council elections, I think. It, you know, it's sort of uh, one of the, it's part of the DNA, I suppose, of you know, councils is that whole discussion around small business. So that, that comes through a lot, probably more than any other particular trend. Like it tends to bury um, even sort of the basic uh, labour type politics and, you know, that sort of voice. And it was funny out here too because Labor wasn't sort of one monolithic voice because there was a lot of of dislike for a particular uh, Labor councillor who was seen to be as probably the most arrogant in his um, support for the privatisation of Footscray Park. Um, and sort of on on the plus side, he was the person we ousted. So that that was a good little victory. People are happy Uh, with us. (laughs) Yeah, well, the number of messages that we've got specifically about that, like people toasting, you know, you got rid of him, uh, you know, it's quite remarkable. It's probably the single biggest bank of messages we've got from people. Um, Interestingly, you know, a lot of people who weren't actually that supportive of our campaign at the beginning, to say the least, Really did come round and have been very celebratory, in particular since we not only beat that Labor candidate but also managed to squeeze out uh, another um, sort of right-wing independent candidate who sort of became the almost the archetypal sort of, almost, you know that sort of libertarian right-wing pro you know. Um, Small business type candidate um, became mm-hmm. the exemplar of that. So we asked two people who were sort of seen by a lot of people as particularly bad, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that's a little that's success. Crazy. Yep. Yeah.
0: Okay, so tell us about what your plans are for office now. I mean. People, this is the classic uh, recently elected politician question. What are you going to do first when when you take up office? Uh, What are you looking forward to about being a councillor? What are your big plans that you've just made in the last 24 hours?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest challenge for us is, you know, not for me, but for Victorian socialists is um, developing a sort of exemplary vision you know, because what we want to fight for is going to take fighting for. You know, it's not going to happen overnight through one decision. Um, you know, not that we can afford to or will skirt decisions when they need to be made, but I, I think our, um, you know, priority is really how do we use this office as, as a platform, you know, for not only fighting around all sorts of local issues and really, you know, organising around those local issues, but also, you know, even more generally, you know, in state politics and so forth. So that's going to take a lot of work for us, I think, collectively as Victorian socialists to think that through. Um, In terms of the day-to-day guide, you know, guide for us and what we do, you know, starting now, I think the key guide, really practical guide is uh, all around organising people, you know, and and bringing their demands, the demands of, you know, communities that are mobilised, not just, you know, Taking phone calls and okay, there's a problem here, pothole, whatever. Sure, we do that. But the really important thing is saying to all those people, well, get organised. You know, Mm -hmm. if there's just like that's why I love that example of you know that guy I met uh, around the bicycle stuff because it wasn't like can you? He didn't ask can Can you you just pass a
0: particular policy or something? Yeah, no,
1: Mm -hmm. exactly. He said, you know, let's organise an action. Um, And anyone who says to us, let's organise an action, you know. And campaign around these important issues for so, you know working class families, for migrant communities, for young people out here, aged citizens, and so forth. That's what we want to prioritise. So that's our, I suppose, our practical guide, what, we go to, uh, our compass for you know things we do day to day.
0: And do you want to just say something about the um, bilingual school program that was one of the features of the campaign and that you'll continue to campaign around?
1: Oh yeah, look, that's a big one, and it's still really sort of ongoing. So we're we're pretty much having uh, campaign meetings sort of weekly, really, uh, almost. Um, and there's a lot of people from uh, obviously the, the Vietnamese community, but also a lot of educationalists now involved in it. Um, and yeah. we've so just to of,
0: explain, sorry, just so people know yeah. that there's a Vietnamese bilingual program in a primary school that um, that the proposal is to get rid of it, right? And we're trying yeah. to save it. That's the simple explanation.
1: Yeah, the sad thing is, this is a program, a Vietnamese bilingual program that's been going at Foots Primary School for, well, let me think. So I think our eldest son started in that in its sort of first couple of years. So it must be about uh, 2000 and early, you know, I don't know, early 2000, maybe 2006 or something. So it's been there for a long time uh, and has been in a really important part of. Um, or a thing really for um, important thing for the Vietnamese community because you, you often get you know this is a community that is really proud about maintaining and, and have achieved you know really maintaining their primary or mother tongue uh, in a way that I wish a lot of other communities had been able to. Um, and, you know, you often come across, I, I, I remember when our kids started at school, you'd come across Vietnamese kids who, when they started school, you know, only really knew rudimentary English, not that it took them long to pick it up because, of course, kids pick up languages in months, literally. Um, but the great thing is they'd spent their first five years at home, maybe only did a little bit of childcare, you know, living in an extended family where their grandparents, their parents talked to them in Vietnamese, maybe Cantonese as well. So, you yeah, know, these were multilingual kids. So the program, in part, was about supporting um, the kids those kids in terms of developing their English language skills but at the same time it became a really beautiful program for people well like our own sons who went through it and a lot of their friends because it was a way of them not only learning some of the language you know because these, this bilingual program in any bilingual program to earn its name um, usually requires about you know up to 10 to 15 hours of instruction at school a week in that language so you know typically kids would do it, In the case of Footscray Primary, they might be doing math, science at different times in uh, Vietnamese. So it was also a way of bringing these non-Vietnamese-speaking kids not only into the language but and all the sort of cognitive benefits of that in terms of learning, but also into the culture. That was the richest, most beautiful part about it. I mean, both of our sons, for example, a lot of their friends went on Vietnamese um, study tours, you know, with a group of kids, met all sorts of great... Uh, kids there in Vietnam and we're, and still have a lot of friends from the community here, which they would never have sort of been able to mm. mix with really. So, yeah, fantastic program. Sadly, the school and the department um, uh, increasingly has come in pretty sort of heavy-handedly in defence of the decision um, mm. to close that program down. So officially it's currently closed. So if you look at the website of the school, the program's gone and instead they've replaced it with uh, by bi- um, uh, Italian bilingual program. I don't know if I – I won't talk about Mm. this in too much more detail because there's too much going on, but just to finish and say that the campaign is ongoing and, you know, we're attempting to either try to win back the program there or at least get the program shifted to one of the other local Western schools where there's, uh, you know, a big Vietnamese um, student population.
0: Yeah, and you'd think it would be popular with the changing demographic of uh, the area as well. I mean, yeah. So if people are interested in that, obviously they can – uh, get in touch with you to get involved in that campaign. And as you as you said before, it's not about um, the council passing a particular policy about it. It's about organising the community to, you know, um, put pressure on the Department of Education in Victoria to bring the program back or, as you said, establish it in another school. So that will be a campaign um, that's ongoing. My final question, and I think probably um, something that, uh, listeners to this podcast might be thinking about we've gone, you know, we've got episodes on um, the economics of capitalism and why it's so messed up um, for the majority of people on the planet. We've got episodes about the environmental catastrophe that's unfolding, you know, every single day. We've got episodes about um, revolutionary struggles and how they've changed the world historically. And now we're talking about Maribyrn on council. So how do we connect? I mean, you've been a revolutionary socialist for a long time. How do we connect all of those things together? What? How does it fit to be a councillor and a revolutionary socialist?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. And I'll tell you what, it's a really important question for all of us, I think, socialists, to reflect on. Uh, especially so now, I mean, look, it's an eternal question. It's been there, you know, going back 150 years or at least 100 years mm. plus. But um, but I think it's sort of particularly important now because in the last sort of 30, 40 years of neoliberalism, the whole idea of alternative and different strategic approaches to fundamental revolutionary change, that whole conversation is, um, has sort of disappeared. You know, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, there was all sorts of trends and views about how you change the world fundamentally, you know, from the sort of electoralism of social democracy all the way through to this sort of uh, ultra-left militarism of various, you know, um, you know, armed groups on the left, you know, and not just in third world countries, but, you know, if you think about the, the weathermen and, you know, and the uh, brigades, and, uh, the red brigades and so forth. But all of that, sort of conversation, that whole debate has disappeared over the last 30 years. And, and so much of the left, including very radical people, can only envisage a way forward through parliamentary means. And this is a global problem, a global mm-hmm. challenge really for the left to revive some of the old discussions, to think much more laterally about how change happens because one thing's dead certain, it's not going to happen through the parliamentary legal Uh, institutions of a system that's more corrupt now, much more corrupt than it was 40 years ago. You know, you could imagine, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you can imagine thinking, oh, maybe if I join the Socialist, sorry, the Labor Party, you know, and and join, say, Whitlam's gang here or whoever else it was somewhere else, maybe I could make some change. Who can imagine that these days? I mean, who can imagine that you can be a left-wing person in the Democrats in the US and really make change? never mind here, you know, in the Labor Party. So I, I think it's a really, really important conversation. I don't uh, um, pretend to have any particular answers uh, of my own in terms of, you know, council. At least I think that um, I've got, you know, the questions, you know, at forefront, you know, and th- that we've got to keep thinking about that and how we use these sort of platforms to build what we do know works because we do know that mass action the mobilization you know of working people does work um okay, you know how far that will get us that's the challenge, you know the historical challenge still in front of us, but yeah, I think it's a fantastic conversation if nothing else, I hope that you know this council position uh helps us reignite that uh, debate you know on the left in, in this country
0: yeah. yeah, I think, as you said, it's just more important than ever to be having conversations about well, what are we going to do to change the system and if we can have the voice of a counsellor to, um, you know, get some media attention, to run some campaigns, to get a bit of a profile and and organise some things locally. I mean, spending the time that you have uh, for being a counsellor, doing all of those things, and, sh- you know, as you said, pointing to the examples of where small changes can happen if people are organised and determined Um Yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic thing to watch for the next few years Um, and to have someone who's a committed socialist, a unionist, you know, who's had years of experience of organizing people in campaigns and stuff. I think it's just um, a very exciting moment and the best election result that's happened uh, certainly for a while. So um, congratulations again and thank you for coming on Red Flag Radio to talk to us about it and we'll be um, back in touch. You're welcome back anytime to tell us what's been happening. We'll keep people updated on the Victorian Socialists. Thank you, Jorge.
1: Thanks heaps, Ros and Lim. Yeah, and I'd love to. I'd love to come back uh, whenever. Yeah, uh, whenever, whenever you want me.
0: Great. And I've got one final special announcement to make, which is that we are coming up to our one year anniversary of having started Red Flag Radio back in November last year. Wow, what a year it's been. <laughs> Um, And we are going to mark the occasion with a special live event that's going to be on Saturday, the 21st of November at 6 o'clock. So just put that date in your diaries for now and I'll put as much information as we can into the show notes. Um, But yeah, put that date down, Saturday, the 21st of November, 6 p.m. We're going to go live with Red Flag Radio for the very first time and you can join us and we will be having uh, tickets available for that at a very small cost to just help out the podcast so watch out for that Um, and you're listening to Red Flag Radio thank you so much for joining us Um, we have a world to win